Good afternoon. This is your host, John, of the Research Review, creating a platform to connect and inspire. I'm here with another excellent guest today, Haley, and also recent three-minute thesis winner, uh, our second three-minute thesis winner um, to come on the, sh- on the show so far. So it is a pleasure having you on. I know a lot of people have been looking forward to this episode, and you know I'm excited to get this started. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? So I'm a sophomore majoring in aerospace engineering right now. Um, I currently have a minor in applied math, but I'm probably going to be changing that to sociology. Mm -hmm. I am the co-founder and current events coordinator of the Women in Engineering Club at Kent State. And we've done a lot of cool stuff. Like we hosted last March a Women in STEM collaborative meeting, which we're going to be hosting another one this year. Uh, We hosted the first Introduce a Girl to Engineering Day last fall in October, which was really fun. Um, And then we just do a lot of like guest speakers and everything. I'm also a member of the Honors College. I was in the 2021 class of the Honors Leadership Academy, which was really cool. I am the current undergraduate student trustee, and then I also do undergrad research. In addition to, I work in the communications and marketing team at the College of Aeronautics and Engineering. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> so everything that you have on your plate right now, mm-hmm. two things. How, how do you balance it? And then what, do you, what is your favorite thing that you're doing? I don't have a favorite because I think if I had a favorite, I would spend all of my time doing that mm-hmm. and none of my time doing anything else. And as far as balancing all of that, Google Calendar is my friend. Yes. I was joking with one of my friends earlier today. I don't think I could function at this point in my life without it because my phone, I use my phone for a lot of things. I have like all of my to-do lists and everything for all of my classes in my calendar. Mm -hmm. So if I have something due or something coming up, I can see that and my phone will yell at me if I don't get it done. (laughs) Or like, you have materials and processes in half an hour. Like, oh, okay, time to head to Bowman. Yeah, sometimes that is an absolute lifesaver. Like Mm -hmm. when I first turned it on at first, I thought this would be annoying, but you know, I gave it a shot and I was like, wow, you just saved me from missing about three things. Yeah, (laughs) no, I don't think that I would be able to manage my time without using some form of like app or something, Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. No, it works well. Yeah, no, and it's definitely good. Like you said, you don't have a favorite because that that would be the one you'd be doing. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's really good to stay balanced with things. Yeah. Because like if you did just have that one thing that you were doing and you gave all your time with that, it's really easy to burn out and to lose enthusiasm in it. You know, enthusiasm is like a big personality trait that really helps you with your work. And yeah. if you don't have like something to you know bounce over to, then divide your time up, it's really easy to lose that enthusiasm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it sounds like you're really doing a really good job with that. Yeah. And I'm also a big um, proponent of like lifelong learning. And I feel like if I'm not always learning or growing some way or like building some skill, I'm going to get really bored and like stale and stagnant and whatever. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's funny. Um, Like when I go to apply to internships or whatever, I have all these not weird experiences, but just things that you're like, well, why do you have experience in that? Like I have uh, during my academic career and before college, I've done a lot of like educational programming. I have a lot of experience with communications, obviously research now to get more of the technical side of it. So it's always weird when I go to apply to internships because I'm like, I feel like all of this is valuable, Mm -hmm. but you know, how am I supposed to pick like two or three things to highlight in a cover letter? Right. (laughs) Um, But I think that that makes me more well-rounded and that's in and of itself one of my strengths is just that 
I try not to over-specialize myself. Mm-hmm. Has its downfalls, it has its benefits, because there's a lot of things that I can at least do well enough to get by. Right. No, I totally agree with that. That's exactly how I like to function as well. Mm-hmm. And communication, like you said, you were definitely have great communication skills. Being the uh, first place winner in the three-minute thesis, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, that that's definitely one of the uh, – you know, biggest traits someone can have, especially in like research too. Yeah. Uh, someone said, you can, I think this was Garrett actually said mm-hmm. this. I, I shouted him out a bunch on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, his was one of my favorites. He said, it does, you know, it doesn't matter about the product that you have. If you can't communicate it mm-hmm. effectively, then it's not going to sell. Exactly. And I feel like depending on the way that you, you know, use your time and the things that you get involved in, if you over specialize in something, whether that's over-specializing in communicating. I mean, if you mm-hmm. are really good at talking about something, but you don't have anything to talk about, then you're kind of negating the purpose of having yeah. all those communication skills. Same thing with like, okay, if you're really good at designing a product or you're really good at making something or doing something, but you don't have the skills or the resources to share that with people, then you don't have a marketable skill or a marketable product. You have a thing sitting on your shelf. Right. You know? Yeah. And you kind of get lost in the process as well. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize that the other people that you're talking with aren't as specialized as you are in that field because you start to get blinded by by your work. And you yeah. start to think that, you know, everyone else thinks as you. So, yeah, it's good to have that well-rounded ability and realistic expectations. Yeah. And I don't think that there's a single, you know, industry or career that, doesn't need well-rounded people. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're an engineer or you're going into public health or you're a doctor or you're a professor. You need to be a well-rounded person to be able to share that knowledge with other people. Yeah. Whether that's through teaching or through communications or through a podcast or, you know, selling a product or marketing a product. You have to be able to interact with other people and Mm -hmm. share that as well as have that marketable product. Yeah, I know you you brought up um especially with like doctors too. Mm-hmm. That's one really big thing that they're they're pushing cuz doctors can become so spe- are so specialized. Mm-hmm. A lot of healthcare officials are really pushing doctors to emphasize on patient care mm-hmm. and they want to teach that better in medical school and a lot of doctors are starting to pair their MD with like a masters in public health as well. Mm-hmm because they think it's really helpful to get a good understanding of also, you know, cultural factors of their patients and other socioeconomic factors Mm -hmm. of the patients, how to stop diseases with preventative measures rather than later on treatments. Right. And I think also, and I, you know, to your point, especially with like medicine Mm -hmm. and then same thing with like engineers, not everybody should be a mechanical engineer because mechanical engineers, depending on where you go to school or what you have an interest in, you know, you think about the difference between, okay, mechanical engineers or like cybersecurity engineers. Right. Where cybersecurity, you're focusing so much on the computer side of things, on the code. With mechanical, you're focusing on the physical thing. Mm-hmm. I guess it's harder to not have a specialization there. Same thing with medicine. I mean, you know, if you're going under surgery for a broken hip or something, or you need your hip replaced, would you want a you know, cardiovascular surgeon doing your hip replacement. Like there's a value in that specialization. You just also have to walk a fine line of, am I over specializing or am I specializing, 
but I still have that well-roundedness to me where I can communicate that with other people. Mm-hmm. And I, as an orthopedic surgeon, can still work with cardiovascular surgeons. I just don't have the same exact skill set. Yeah. Yeah. If, I mean, frankly, if we all had the same skill set, then I think colleges would go out of business teaching those more specialized skill sets and mm-hmm. everything. And we'd be boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there would be no reason for collaboration, really. I know. People would be boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there'd be no reason to learn more because if everybody knows the same thing, then how do we know that there are other things out there to learn? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. It's great that you've identified that so early, mm-hmm. and it's great that you're using that right now. Now, what kind of attracted you? I know you mentioned, like, the different specializations of engineering. Mm-hmm. What attracted you to aerospace engineering specifically? I was always really good at math in high school and in like elementary school and everything. I think it's very funny. For a while, I hated math. Mm -hmm. I did not want anything to do with it. Really? At one point, and I was probably like 10 maybe, like 8, 9, 10-ish, I said to my mom, um, you know, I don't like numbers, but numbers like me. You know, I was good (laughs) at it, but I didn't want to do it. Right. And so when I got to high school and I realized, oh, hey, I can capitalize on this or there are, you know, careers out there Mm -hmm. that I can use this skill that I'm really good at. I started taking a lot more math classes. I started challenging myself more in that way. Um, And actually, at first, just because of what I was curious in, I was looking at going to school to be a geneticist. Because NASA's, a couple years ago, their twin study, they sent one twin up to the ISS for a year, and Mm -hmm. then they kept the other twin on the ground, and they were monitoring the genetic changes so that for stuff like, you know, the Artemis missions, when we go back to the moon and we're in space for longer periods of time, and eventually when we go to Mars, we kind of know what we're looking at as far as like muscular atrophy, you know, DNA shortening, telomere shortening, stuff like that. We Mm -hmm. know what we're working with. I loved that. I was fascinated by it. So I was like, I'm going to go to school to be a geneticist. I'm going to major in biology. I'm going to go get my doctorate and everything, my MD. It's going to be great. And then I took a college biology class as a CCP student, and I went, there's no way I'm doing this. <laughs> and so I was like, well, how do I, you know, I really enjoy space exploration. I'm really good at math. I need to do something STEM. What do I want to do? Mm-hmm. So I was like, aerospace engineering. That's, you know, the mix of all of it. I'm going to yeah. get to work with these geneticists, but not be a geneticist, you know? Right. And I'm glad that I did that because I – really enjoy like what I'm doing and what I'm learning about and the things that I'm going to get to do in my career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's like I said, that's great that you mm-hmm. figure that out early on. There's some people who don't even figure that out until they get into the workforce. Yeah. And they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. And then yeah. they got to, you know, completely start over from scratch all over mm-hmm. again. And I think that's a huge value of like research and doing internships and stuff is regardless of what field you're in, it gets you out of the classroom sooner. And so you know, if you realize, oh, crap, I really don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. You realize that before you hit the workforce and you're like, well, now I've been working for a year and a half. I don't, you know, my employer will pay for me to go further this education, not go back and redo it. Yeah. You know, what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. So I'm a big fan of research and I, you know, praise it. I praise the SURE program to pretty much everybody I talk to. I actually just had a friend of mine ask me about it today. She's really? thinking about doing it in, you know, a year or two. Oh, that's sweet. And I'm like do it yeah like you do it absolutely do it (laughs) and not even necessarily for the 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 research projects are cool Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong but for the research experience alone because even if okay maybe you don't love the project you were on or you don't love the direction you're taking it you can take those skills and apply them anywhere else and 
you know, you mentioned this earlier, there's a lot of employers that look for those skills that you gain from research or mm -hmm. from some sort of outside of the classroom technical experience. You can't get that from in a classroom. Yeah. You know, there are things that you have to get out and learn on your own that no lecturer is going to be able to convey to you. Right. And those are skills that you can use in every single aspect mm -hmm. of your life, including when you get a job. Right. Yeah. They're they're a lot more interested in the um, in the research experience itself and the projects. Yeah. And I remember I, I actually I recently had an interview uh, a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. They were looking at my resume and they brought up like, hey, I noticed you did something with HIV, but they didn't ask anything about the, the project itself. They said, what have you kind of learned from doing research? They said, what was your biggest like challenge mm -hmm. in it? What was your biggest accomplishment? And what would you do differently next time? They yeah. asked like those four questions, mm -hmm. but they didn't ask me anything about my project, you know? Yeah, because there's also, and again, one of the huge things that you learn from doing research or doing an internship or something outside of the classroom, mm -hmm. y there's a big difference between a homework being hard and you having to figure out how to get over, you know, okay, I have a really hard problem on this homework. I need to get over this hurdle versus a hurdle like in research where you're like, I have no idea what these numbers mean, yeah. or I have no idea how to operate this equipment where you either have to ask for help or you have to do a lot of, you know, figuring it out, a lot of problem solving to get there. And it's a different kind of hard and like different careers, it's a different kind of hard. Um, you can pick things that are not as hard, but still, I mean, it's skills that I don't think anybody should go without learning before they graduate. Definitely, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what do you think has been the, the best thing that you've learned from your research experience so far? I think the coolest thing about my research experience was just um, kind of the lab experience because mm -hmm. I'm from a very rural hometown. Biggest thing is farming. A lot of people have careers that are either in ag or ag adjacent. And so there's not a lot of, I guess, exposure to engineering. Yeah. And so being in the lab for the first time, I think I have a Snapchat video of me walking around the lab and being just so excited and having the dumbest little smile <laughs> on my face because I'm like, oh my gosh, was, I'm in here. What was it like? It was, it felt surreal. Because I'm like, I have never worked with any of this material before. Mm -hmm. And I was so excited to get to learn it and to get to work with it. And just to have those skills that there's no way I could have learned that from a class at this stage. Right. So I, I was very excited and also to get to work with the different faculty. Because not only was I working with my mentor who was overseeing everything, but I was also working with other you know, faculty members at the CAE who were helping me 3D print things, who were helping me mount my planes so that I could actually put them in the wind tunnel and run these tests. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, learning about, well, why are we using stainless steel rods and not aluminum? Or why were, you know, why are we printing in this material? Or why are we using this layer height? Stuff like that. It was just, it's an experience that I could not have possibly gotten yeah. from a class. A wind tunnel, that sounds sweet. <laughs> I, would, I would be excited if I saw something like that too. I was very nervous at first because, and it's a it's a subsonic wind tunnel, so it's smaller. It doesn't go above 35 meters per second of, you know, the airspeed. Mm -hmm. But I was very nervous because I'm like, what if I push the wrong button? Or what if I mount it wrong and it's not stable and then it just breaks? Yeah. And, but again, it's back to that, that, that you, the things that you can only learn from actually being 
out of the classroom and doing it yourself. Right. You know, I couldn't have learned how to mount that in my aerodynamics class. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's, again, it's the problem solving of, okay, well, if I push this button or if I do things in this order, this happens. Yeah. But I don't want that to happen. I want this to happen. You know, what do I, how do I make that happen? Right. You think learning that and getting used to that type of thinking has helped you within your uh, engineering coursework? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that engineering as a whole introduces you to like a different kind of problem solving Mm -hmm. where, you know, maybe the solutions that aren't immediately obvious, you start to almost think backwards. And it's funny, I was actually talking to my friends, one of my friends about this today. You know, you see the problem, right? And maybe you have an idea of the solution Mm -hmm. of like, okay, well, it would be cool if we solved it this way, or it would be helpful if we solved it this way or, you know, functional or whatever. I find that it's easier to almost backtrack from a solution. And I do the same thing on my homework when I get super, super stuck. I'm like, okay, this is what I'm looking for. How did we get there? Right. And, you know, you think some engineers think forward in the progression, like, okay, I want to go in this direction. This is a step that I can take here. Yeah. Some engineers think backwards where, you know, okay, here's my solution. Here's the next step down from it and so on and so forth. Um, And through research and out of the classroom experiences, I've gotten to play around with both of those methods of thinking. And it's just been incredibly helpful. And I don't think, again, I don't think that's something I could have learned from a classroom experience. Engineering gives you, helps you, your mind work to solve problems Mm -hmm. differently. I know... Uh, America's richest people have degrees in either business, Mm -hmm. economics, or engineering. And and engineering is one of the top ones because it teaches you to solve problems, you know, and makes them the lead innovators within society. Yeah. And it's interesting, too. um, One of the girls I work with is a hospitality management major. And every career is a different kind of hard mm-hmm. you know I could never do what she does on a daily basis yeah. and vice versa and that's okay you know there there are different careers and different types of learners for a reason and we were setting up for an event the one day and me and one of our other co-workers who was another engineering major w- there was this problem we couldn't hang a you know banner or whatever and we were like oh well let's try this and we fixed it and she was just like how did you get to that conclusion and we're like oh well you just you know, here's the progression. Yeah. And so it's always interesting, like the way that we think is different from the way that she thinks and her progression is different than ours. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that it's the same here. I mean, my thought progression is going to be different than yours. And so one skill that I feel like everybody needs is the communication aspect of it. Yeah. Of wait, 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 hold on, hold on. How did we get from point A to point B and being able to backtrack and talk somebody through it or right explain like, well, why are we doing it that way and not this way? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is incredibly valuable regardless of the field that you're in. Yeah, yeah, because it's great to have all those different thought processes. Mm -hmm. And it becomes even more valuable when everyone on a team is able to communicate the way that they think because that helps you, you know, solve a problem a lot more effectively. Yeah, and to your point about like the business and, um, you know, economics and engineering side of things, those professions have the opportunity and have the potential to get so highly specialized. Yeah. Um, like, you know, I'm not as versed on the business side of things, but with engineering, 
you think, oh, I'm going to be an engineer. Well, what kind of engineer? Because mechanical, automotive, mechatronics, mm -hmm. aerospace, cybersecurity, electrical, like the list goes on. Um, and so I feel like in those specialized fields, the most successful people are the best communicators because even as an aerospace engineering student, if I'm sitting here talking to an electrical engineer, if they can't walk me through it, right. then I don't understand the solution. Yeah. Same thing with like if, you know, an electrical engineer is sitting there trying to explain to a business person why we get got to a certain conclusion or vice versa, you know, the business person explaining to the electrical engineer. You're not going to get anywhere if you can't explain your solutions. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. And you know, that's why I think that you're going to go so far in what you're doing Thank and why you. You, you already have. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, you. You mentioned mechatronics. I know that's that's like a fairly new engineering field, isn't it? It's new locally, I would say. Okay. Um, most mechatronics engineering programs are not in the United States. I believe that Kent State is the either one of the only or it's the only university in the entire country that has mechatronics as a degree program. Okay. Um, which is so incredibly valuable, yeah. especially now in 2023 is, you know, you have all this electronic equipment sitting in front of you. Um, chat GPT is mm. coming out oh, and everybody crazy. like as we as a society transition more towards, you know, electronics running our lives. I mean, we all have phones that we can't live without. Yeah. I was talking about Google calendar earlier that just <laughs> runs my life we need more highly specialized things in different engineering disciplines and mechatronics specifically encompasses a lot. It includes mechanical, it includes electrical, um, it includes automation. And so a lot of mechatronics engineers, what a lot of them will end up doing is going into some form of like robotics or, you know, automation. Right. So one of the um, engineers that we've hosted a couple times for women in engineering is a speaker. She works at Tesla. She's an automation engineer. Um, she majored in electrical engineering, but a lot of our mechatronics majors relate to her a lot because yeah. of what she's doing. She works at Tesla. She works as an automation engineer. And so she programs the robots that build the cars. And pretty much oh. every automotive industry now is either, you know, even you think about when cars were first invented, the assembly line. Well, the assembly line in Henry Ford's day looks so different from today. Yeah. And most of it is either fully automated or semi-automated. And there has to be somebody behind the scenes programming those robots, designing those pieces of equipment. And that's where your mechatronics engineers come in. Right. A lot of them. And so as it's a growing industry, there's not a whole lot of programs, but they are incredibly valuable. Yeah. And that sounds so cool, too, that you're able to, you know, touch, mm -hmm. you get that, like you mentioned, um, a little bit of electrical, a mm -hmm. little bit of mechanical and uh, computers. Yeah, a yeah. little bit of programming. I know programming. one of the classes that I have a couple friends that are in mechatronics and they have to take like, oh, I think it's C. I think they have to learn C and I know they have to learn MATLAB as mm -hmm. well. So it's a lot of different skills wrapped up into one major that is going to set them up for success so, so, so much. Right. Yeah. It gets you because it gets you those, those broad disciplines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned chat GPT. Have you got a chance to play around with that at all? I, a little bit. Yeah. I think it's it's a little bit terrifying, but it's also really cool. Oh, it's crazy. Just because, you know, the way that that's coded, I think it's going to learn as it goes and as people ask more questions. So I think I asked it something 
the one day I was playing around with it and I think I asked it something about my research just yeah. to see like, okay, how, how much does this thing actually know? And I was kind of baiting it for the answer that I wanted. Mm-hmm. It didn't quite get there, but I'm sure if I gave it another month or so, it would hit the nail on the head and I'd be like, oh crap. Yeah, it's um, just in its infancy too. Yeah, I mean, it rolled out, what, a month ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They started beta testing or yeah. whatever. So it's gonna be an incredible piece of technology, but it's going to change the way that people learn. It's gonna change the way that people teach. It's mm-hmm. gonna change the way that we access information. Yeah. And this is only really the first of its kind. I mean, yes, there's Google and you know Yahoo and all those other search engines, but this is more than that. Yeah. And it's, I, I am fascinated to see where this goes in the next five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. No, totally. A little bit terrified, but fascinated <laughs> as well. Yeah. Like you said, like everything's going to have to change, yeah, especially mm-hmm. I think in our education system Yeah. and how we, um, you know, how we teach kids. We're going to start, I think, having to give students the opportunity to work more with technology and teach them to work with technology, do projects um, integrated with technology uh, rather than, you know, just the classic book and paper kind of style. And I think that even before ChatGPT, just both of my parents were in education my entire life. So Mm -hmm. education has always been very near and dear to my heart. Um, Because again, you think about it. So like our grandparents' generation, they have lived through the moon landing. You know, when they were born, nobody had ever left earth yeah they have seen the moon landing they've seen computers they've seen mtv they Mm -hmm. have seen cell phones that they carry around in their pockets it's been you know an overwhelming amount of technological advancement whereas like our generation we've only ever known this technology you know what i mean and same thing with like people our age ask current like eight or nine year olds about something or about technology Sometimes people at our age feel out of the loop yeah. because they've we've never known a society without computers or without technology. They've never known life without cell phones. And so the way that human beings learn and frankly exist is entirely changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point about the way that people learn, you know, there are professors, I, my physics professor last semester for at the beginning, and he over time he got better about it, he was very much like, no phones, no laptops, you take notes on a pen and paper. Really? Well, that's not how everybody learns. Yeah. A lot of people in my classes, they take notes on like Microsoft Whiteboard or OneNote, and it's all on their computer mm-hmm. or a tablet or something. They, can't, they don't do pen and paper anymore. And if they were to, their grades would drop just yeah. because, you know, you're asking this drastic, drastic change of them when this is the way that they've learned all through high school, through junior high, some of them even into elementary school. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm interested to see, you know, 10, 20 years from now when people start doing, you know, full-scale studies on like the way that people learned 50 years ago versus the way that people learn today. I'm interested to see in how drastic a change it is because, I mean, just thinking about it is crazy, you know, to yeah. see a full-scale study would be absolutely insane it would be it would be totally crazy and like you said you know thinking back to our grandparents and how they've seen you know that whole progression of technology mm-hmm. is really crazy yeah um my my shout out to my my grandpa um <laughs> i showed him chat gpt uh a couple days ago for the first time and he was blown away and especially he he worked on the uh 
uh, the first Univac computers, mm -hmm. the ones that were like you know as big as a room. And yeah, the, they ran the off big like, IBMs and everything. Yeah, yeah, those things. They ran off like the one and zero code, everything. Binary. So yeah, yeah, bi yeah, binary code. That's what <laughs> it was. Um, so you know, he has he's always been really smart with technology. Um, so he's been able to like you know get a basic understanding of everything new as it's mm -hmm. rolled out and he's tried to keep up with the, the times and everything but yeah i showed him the new chat gpt and he was just blown away I, yeah absolutely blown away he knew everything about the univac computer that he knew mm -hmm. um it's creative too mm -hmm. it, you can ask it to write a poem and it yeah. writes one flawlessly that i think is why i'm like oh my gosh and why a lot of people are also a little bit wary of mm -hmm. it is just because um you know, if we pulled up chat GPT right now, yeah. we asked it the same question, worded it the exact same way, fed it the exact same information, we would get two different answers. We would, yeah. Because it differentiates. It's not like, you know, something like Google or Yahoo. And if it was, there wouldn't be a market for it where, you know, it spits out, here's a web page, here's your information, here's a snippet of, I think this is the answer you're looking for. Yeah. ChatGPT has been designed to learn as people ask it questions and as it's like, well, what about this? And it searches those existing databases and pulls that existing information and then uses its knowledge of grammar and the way that people talk to word it differently. So yeah. it feels like you're having a conversation with somebody online, like over, you know, Instagram DMs or something. But no, it's just this piece of technology spitting information back at you according to this algorithm. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I think they're kind of doing it better than we do it. I think in some cases, yeah. yeah and it's it's going to get a lot better and better. Mm -hmm. I, the thing that like scares me is, you know, when the f whole idea of artificial intelligence mm -hmm. rolled out, people were more concerned of it taking um, its role in automation, you know, mm -hmm. taking factory jobs, taking restaurant jobs, uh, stuff like that. But it's it's also, you know, it's it has the same abilities as engineers, mm -hmm. as computer scientists, as artists. Yeah. It's able to make art. It's able to make music. Right. There's our, not ChatGPT specifically, but there's similar artificial intelligent programs that are that write songs mm -hmm. and make music. I think that that has been a concern throughout history. Mm -hmm. You know, that worry that people have right now is not specific to ChatGPT. Um, because, again, there's always going to be the concern of, oh, this new technology is you know, challenging what I know or what I can do, or it's going to take my job. I think that throughout history, we've seen that innovation fuels new markets. True. So like True. It, you mentioned automation in factories, and I mentioned Taraya's work at Tesla, mm -hmm. you know, 30 years ago, your market wasn't for automation engineers. It was for those techs that were running those machines, those man operated machines, you know, and actually building the cars. Now the market is for people that know how to design those systems and techs that when those systems break, they can go in and fix it. Yeah. Um, same thing with like AI. I mean, you can fully automate a factory, but you need somebody there to make sure that it doesn't break. You need somebody there to manufacture the materials before they get to the you know, before they get to the operating table or before they get to the factory line. There's always going to be a market for human beings mm -hmm. in industry, regardless of if that's medicine or engineering or technology, whatever it might be. 
just the way that that market looks is going to change as we come up with new technology. That's, you know, that's true. Uh, like you brought up the idea of, you know, making new industries and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think that the demand for people is going to decrease. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think it's going to decrease depending on the position. You know what I mean? Because, mm-hmm. um, again, just thinking back to, like, the factory system, I mean, what was it? 200 years ago, we had kids working in factories and textile factories making these cloths because that's what we as a society needed. But obviously, child labor isn't that good of a market. Right. Um, <laughs> and so technology over time has made us safer. And same thing with, like, cell phones now. I mean, there were people... 20, 30 years ago when this technology started coming out that were like, I don't want a phone in my pocket. Right. You know, I don't want this type of technology with me. I don't want to become reliant on it. Mm-hmm. But now out of ease and out of making things easier and safer and more efficient, we rely on technology a lot more than we used to. Yeah. Um, and so, again, it goes back to that idea of innovation and technology is going to fuel new markets. We don't know what those markets look like. Right. But again, you know, you think about our grandparents' generation. That's going to look what they thought that 2023 was going to look like mm-hmm. is definitely different than it does. True. And, the, you know, what we think 40, 50 years from now is going to look like is going to be vastly different from what actually happens. Yeah. Just because we have no idea of knowing what new technology is going to come out or what new innovation. Mm-hmm. It, that's, you know, that's really crazy to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that you said that. And I think, you know, that change from our, our grandparents started with the first Univac computer. Mm-hmm. Now it came, went to um, like the chat GPT and all that. Yeah. I think I think that that whole change is going to be like even greater within our lifetimes. Yeah. You know, as technology gets greater and greater, innovation and advancement moves faster and faster. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's even it's going to be in, unfathomable. Yeah. <laughs> what we're going to what we're going to see. And it's overwhelming to think about, too, because, again, we can't comprehend the amount of technological advancement and everything Mm -hmm. that we're going to witness before, you know, we pass away. Neither could our grandparents. Yeah. Neither will our generation. I (laughs) couldn't think of the (laughs) word. But we don't have the capacity to fathom these things big picture. Mm -hmm. And if we did, we'd have the technology by now. Right. But... We're getting there. Yeah. People are working on these things. And I love, you know, seeing the news stories or hearing about the research that's going on, not only just at the university, but on a global scale into some of these new technologies or medicines or, you know, designs, just because there is so much out there right now that has the opportunity to revolutionize the way that we exist yeah. or the way that we travel or the way that we talk to each other or whatever it might be. 20 years from now is going to look totally different than today does. Mm-hmm. And I am very excited to see it. True. And it's definitely got to be so cool for you because, you, you know, you're an engineering researcher mm-hmm. and you're on the cutting edge of this stuff. Like you're probably one of the first people to know about a new piece of technology. I wouldn't say one of the first people. It kind of depends on who gets to the news article True. before I do. True. But, but it does put me in a unique position. Um, and I mentioned I work in my college's communications and advising office mm-hmm. and everything. One of the things that I do is actually when our faculty members publish research or they get appointed to positions on advisory boards or whatever it might be, I take those that those papers or those pieces of information and I summarize it and I condense it into a form that your average reader can understand. 
Um, and I, you know, I get to leverage that technical background, but also, you know, there's my passion for communications and right. for lifelong learning. I get to share that with people. Um, and I think that that's true of any specialized field. You can put an engineering research paper in front of me and I can probably piece my way through it. Mm-hmm. But if you were to put, you know, a medical study on the effects of a drug on a certain cancer in front of me, yeah, I wouldn't be able to get through it because I wouldn't know what half of the jargon means. So again, it kind of depends on what is presented to me. Right. <laughs> but, and I think that's true of any profession. Yeah, no, definitely. Give us a quick rundown of like what your uh, research is. So my research is into the aerodynamic efficiency of different winglet shapes. Mm-hmm. So if you've ever um, taken a flight or been on a plane and looked out over the wing, most planes nowadays, if not all, I think I have yet to be on a plane that hasn't had one. Um, they have this wingtip extension. It's called a winglet. Yeah. Those and little... the whole, yeah. Yeah, some of them look like that. Some of them are straight. Um, and the whole purpose of that is to reduce the drag on the winglet or on the wing and by extension, the overall aircraft. Yeah. They started researching that in like the 1970s at NASA. But the idea is actually from as early as um, like the late 1800s, early 1900s, before humans ever took flight. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember where this research was happening, but they were thinking about improvements to efficiency and aerodynamic efficiency as it relates to just vehicles and like cars and whatever. Yeah. Um, and so instead of the stationary winglets that they started looking into in the 70s, it was like rotating plates at the end of, you know, just monitoring the way that air flew over these rotating plates. It was actually kind of interesting to read a little tidbit about it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. Interesting. And so when they started doing research in the 70s, they were like, oh, hey, you know, these winglets work really well at drag reduction. And the whole way that it works is, you know, okay, here's your wing, right? Mm -hmm. There's an area of high pressure air underneath your wing that creates your lift, which is what keeps the airplane in the air. We we like that lift. Um, Naturally, that air wants to diffuse to an area of lower pressure air, which is on top of your wing. Mm -hmm. And then that movement around your wingtip creates a vortex. Yeah. And that adds it drag on the overall craft and slows you down. It slows you down, it raises fuel costs, it raises emissions, it makes your plane louder because it's working harder. Mm -hmm. And so what winglets do is, okay, instead of your wingtip vortex being here, here's your winglet, now it's up here. And it moves it above and behind the plane of the wing. So it decreases the overall drag, and then you have lower fuel costs, you have lower emissions, lower noise, all that good stuff. And that's what they found in the 70s. And then since the 90s, most of the research that people have done on it have been via computer simulation. Yeah. Because now we're right back to the conversation about technology. It's cheaper than physical testing. Right. Um, And it's really hard to put a full-scale Boeing 737 in a wind tunnel and, (laughs) you know, blow air at it and see how it behaves. Like, it's dangerous, it's unsafe, it's not cost-effective, but plugging it into a simulation makes more sense. So what we did with our project was um, we modeled and then 3D printed little plane models. And now they weren't, you know, 737 size, but they were more looking like Cessnas. Mm-hmm. Um, so smaller, like two, four seater plane with these different winglet shapes. And then we put them in the wind tunnel at the College of Aeronautics and Engineering. And we tested them at a couple different velocities, couple different angles of attack, which is just the inclination. Yeah. Um, 
to see which was more efficient and kind of verify those computer studies that had been done on does this actually, is this actually more efficient? Wait, how big were the planes that you put in the wind tunnel again? So if I had to guess, they were probably, the wing, the wingspan was 25 centimeters. Okay. And so the whole, the whole body span, um, nose to back end, I would say maybe 35 centimeters. So mm -hmm. fairly small about that. Yeah. Um, because it's a, we were using a subsonic wind tunnel. It's an AF 100. So small university use size, you know, this is not your NASA sized wind tunnel that you s would see in a movie like Hidden Figures where right. it's an entire building of just this big fan. <laughs> I was going to say like, we got something like that at Kent no, State. <laughs> no, it is much smaller, which mm -hmm. is why we did the scale testing. Right. But, That's cool. So yeah. what, what did you um, end up find f finding from the test that you ran? Our, the patterns that we noticed in our data aligned pretty well with what prior computer simulations had found. Mm -hmm. um, typically, and I'm going to, you know, consult my notes before yeah. I mix up graphs in my brain. Um, consistently, as the angle of attack increased, which was, like I had mentioned earlier, your inclination, yeah. we also saw increases in the coefficient of lift and the coefficient of drag, mm -hmm. which all those coefficients are is it's a dimensionless quantity to compare your lift and drag that is produced to um, your dynamic pressure, which incorporates wingspan, planform wing area, and your velocity. It, it, they're coefficients to relate lift and drag to other, you know, aerodynamic quantities. Yeah. Um, but both lift and drag coefficients increased with increasing angle of attack, which is what we expected to see. Um, and higher angles of attack also correlated to higher lift to drag ratios, which again, from our coefficients of lift and drag made sense and was kind of what we were looking for. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because there's so many different winglet shapes out there. Um, there's a couple main ones that you use, like a lot of the ones that you would see on a commercial airline yeah. are gonna all look pretty similar, if not the same. Um, that's for a reason. <laughs> One of the ones that we tested, we tested four. Uh -huh. We did a blended winglet, which is just a normal kind of like scooped extension a little bit. Like that? It, like that, yeah. yeah, it's that one. Um, we tested that one. We tested a plain wing, which no winglet, just flat. flat. Yep. Um, we also tested a Whitcomb winglet, which has both an upper and a low, like a low lower extension. Split. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of, it's split, yeah. Okay. And that's named after one of the original engineers from the 1970s, Dr. Richard Rickholm. Uh -huh. um, Aren't those on like some of the fighter jets? Some of them, yeah, but okay. they're much smaller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we also tested one, it's called a spiroid winglet, and it almost looks like a Mobius strip, uh, you know? It's like the, it's literally just a loop on really? the end of your wing. Yeah. Wait, it's it's like, a, like a hollow, like it, it touch, like it touches? Yeah, it's hollow. I have, remind me, I can show you a picture okay, of it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. No, you, do you know what a Mobius strip looks like? No. It's the so that's the mathematical concept of, okay, you know, I'm going to take this paper here for a second. Um, wow, if I could rip that, that'd be cool. <laughs> so, nah, still my there we go. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you have this. Yeah. Normally you would think it would connect like that, right? Right. Well, if you flip this, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. Oh, there we go. Now you have one continuous surface. Oh. So like... If I were to take a pencil and trace 
over this surface, yeah. you know, there, I would never pick up my pen and I would never, you know what I mean? Like here, okay, so here, if I traced it, you'd go around the outside, you wouldn't have anything on the middle. Right. If I flipped this and like stapled it or something, now I have a Mobius strip. And if I take my same pen and I draw along the side of this, I'm gonna draw over every surface. There's only right. one surface technically here. So it's, you know, if here's your... That's interesting, what? So, so if here's your wing, uh -huh. here's your uh, spiroid winglet, basically. It's like a little loop. Okay. Now, now, what makes the difference of it being like a Mobius versus if it was just like a normal circle? L like in, in, yeah. terms, in terms of why it's a Mobius on the end of the wing. Like why do they put that like, versus like normal circle? I don't know. And it doesn't totally invert, but it's just, you know, for basis of comparison, right. that's kind of what it looks like. Mm -hmm. um, honestly. the other piece of paper? Yeah, this one? No, oh, that one. This one. Yeah. Yeah. I told you my my, my pops, mm -hmm. he was a like a, a, a Cessna pilot. He he taught me like the, the basic concept of lift. Yeah. He did take a paper plane mm -hmm. like this, and then <laughs> <laughs> I'm like trying to show it to the camera. You rip. I keep forgetting we have these, and then you like <laughs> like rip the ends of them right here. Yeah. Have you ever seen this before? Yeah. So that is almost an example of like a control surface. A control surface. So you know you have your plane. And then there's two control surfaces on your front wing and either one or two on the back, depending on the model. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm gonna say they're elevators and I'm really hoping that I'm that not messing that up because I'm gonna embarrass <laughs> everybody in all my classes if I call them elevators and they're not. Um, but in a lot of commercial sized planes, yeah. your control surfaces are automated. So okay. you can control them from the you know, from the cockpit, the pilot has control over right. your elevators and everything. It, it's like when, when he pulls like back, like these go like more down, don't they? The flaps. Yeah. yeah. And then there's also two control surfaces in the front. So, you know, if you have your, just pull up my paper again. <laughs> so here's your plane. You have your main wing. Mm -hmm. You're going to have two control surfaces, one here, one here. And then obviously same thing on the other side. Yeah. And then you're also going to have your back control surfaces, which is what you're demonstrating right, right, with right. that one. Um, this didn't fly as I planned it. <laughs> I thought it was supposed to go up. <laughs> well, it might be the design of your plane, but <laughs> I'm only a sophomore. I don't have the, you know, You're only a expertise. sophomore. Yeah, really? I'm only a sophomore, wow. second year right now. But yeah, so just kind of interesting stuff there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting too. So some of the studies that I read to, you know, prep for this and to do my lit review and everything and just kind of get an idea of what I was working with. Yeah. They have you know, the simulation, the models of where those vortexes of air actually accumulate. And you can see really obvious in this, you know, simulation and in this graphic, it's a lot darker than it is with a winglet. And it completely, the location of it completely moves. It gets smaller, it gets lighter. So your overall effect is a lot less. Yeah. And again, if you decrease the drag on the end of your wing, you're gonna decrease the overall skin friction drag that you feel on your whole craft that's gonna you know, reduce your emissions, your fuel costs, your fuel maintenance costs, everything. One study that they did, um, and they actually included a winglet design specific to Boeing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, and not all, but some Boeing models use, it's called a maxi winglet. And maxi. so it's like a, it's a bigger scoop than a blended, and it also has a little bit of a lower scoop. Yeah. So it's like you mix a blended and a Whitcomb, basically. Okay. Um, at least that's what 
my interpretation of it is in my understanding. And with the use of that particular winglet, they did an analysis of, you know, okay, how many more passengers can we carry? Yes, we know that it's decreasing drag, but is this really cost effective? Is Mm -hmm. it worth the money that we're going to put into retrofit these winglets to our planes? They were able to prove that they could carry over 2,000 more passengers a year mm-hmm. with the use of this winglet wow. and changing no other factors. That's a lot. So they're not changing fuel consumption. They're not changing anything. Same amount of fuel, same amount of maintenance, checks, and everything, 2,000 more passengers Wow. with the use of a winglet. So that's pretty That's pretty substantial finding. Yeah. yeah. And so obviously with this kind of a potential improvement, and especially lately with, you know, air plane fuel costs rising, it is in the airline's best interest to either buy a plane that already has a winglet on it or Mm -hmm. retrofit a winglet because all it does is it saves them money. Yeah. It saves them money. It lowers emissions, which is better for the environment. um, And your consumer is happy because your airline prices could be lower. Right. (laughs) And I like to travel. I like lower airfare. Yeah. And it has been expensive lately. It has been so expensive lately. No, it's been insane. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that is just the market because of post-COVID. Part of that is the, you know, all gas prices rising even for airline or for vehicles. Airline gas was the same way. Mm -hmm. It was higher fuel costs. Um, And then, again, just changing markets. You're losing some of your pilots. You're gaining some pilots. You're losing maintenance tax. You're gaining maintenance tax. It just... It really depends on what's going on. Right. Just current event-wise, but... Yeah, yeah. it sounds like there's a lot to, like, play into making a decision like that. It's a lot, and that's something that... I consider myself a frequent flyer. My family likes to travel. Mm -hmm. Um, But until I got into this discipline and really started, you know, seeing all of the different stuff that goes into that, it's insane. There's so many different things, and I'm sure it's the same with public health. I mean, there are so many different considerations and factors that go into play whenever you're making a decision that mm-hmm. I would have no idea about because that's not my background. Yeah, there there is there's like a whole class on um just decisions within uh like public health policy. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting too. Um, so with our conclusions that we came to was. So the spiroid model that I was show- telling you about, the weird loopy one. Right, that one, cool thing, yeah. The, we- the one that kind of reminds me of a Mobius strip just a little bit. Um, that model actually showed the greatest overall changes in coefficient of drag, coefficient of lift, average lift to drag ratio. But it showed the biggest differences in all of it. So it's not like it was just trending in the positive direction. It was also showing the biggest trends in the negative direction. Uh. Um, and on top of that... It's obviously not easy to manufacture. I mean, I modeled everything using Inventor software, which Mm -hmm. I like to think is pretty user-friendly as far as um, 3D modeling software goes. But I had at least 12 to 18 work planes to model this thing. Really? So I'm, you know, adding a work plane. So here's my end of my wing. I have a work plane here. Then I have one here. Then I have one here. And so forth all the way around. And it was insane. I think I took two or three days just on one winglet model. Really? That's tiny. And, oh, my God, it was frustrating. How, but much, how much time in total do you think you spent on your, um, like, on some of the stuff within your research project? I couldn't tell you. Um, models alone took me at least a week, week and a half. Yeah. Um, 3D printing took really long just because each model took, 
you know, six to eight hours, plus then it had to soak the supports off, then I had to go pick it up right, and make right. sure that it... So the 3D printing alone, I think, took at least a week, and I was trying to budget my time so that the printing was happening the week that I was on vacation. Yeah. We made it work. It was okay. And then the analysis, I wrote an analysis code in MATLAB just mm-hmm. to kind of get some of my graphs and condense my raw data. That also took a long time. I mean, I think I probably spent two, three days on that. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I know. So the spiroid model, despite showing all the biggest changes, obviously it's not the easiest to manufacture. And so when it comes to, okay, we want to actually apply this to real life, it doesn't make sense to, you know, pay manufacturers and engineers all this money to make that a reality. Right. Um, when it isn't entirely trending in the positive direction. And it also, because of the extra weight from all that material, it increases the wing root bending moment. So basically, instead of, you know, with like a blended model or a canted model, you're pushing on your wing that much. Mm-hmm. With a spiroid model, you're pushing on it that much. Just okay. because there's so much extra weight. Right. And so then there goes some of the structural integrity of your entire plane. And obviously, you don't want to you know, compromise the structural integrity of your wing. That's yeah. pretty important. So that one... Again, with our, you know, analysis, we were able to pretty much rule out, no, it wouldn't make sense to apply this one. Um, the Whitcomb model, it showed the biggest decrease in drag, which, you know, we're looking for drag redu- reducing geometries. Yay, go team. Yeah. But compared to the blended model, uh-huh. the changes in the coefficient of drag or coefficient of lift, excuse me, and the lift to drag ratio, which is like our positive, you know, trending direction right, right. was pretty insignificant. And so by way of, you know, manufacturing simplicity and just overall, you know, trends in the data, Mm -hmm. the blended model's probably going to be the best for practical application, which is what other studies have found. Right. And which is what most airlines have gone with as the blended model or some form of a blended or canted model. The only difference is that just the swoop or no swoop. Yeah. Um, That's what most people apply currently. Okay. And so... Our data lined up with previous data, which is exactly what we were going for. So we're happy. Two claps for that. And so that's what you would recommend. Yeah, I would recommend a blended model uh, just because it is out of the ones that I studied, the easiest to manufacture, Mm -hmm. easiest to maintain, easiest as far as additional weight goes. And it's still proven to be effective. Okay. So So. what are are some of the steps moving forward? Um, There's a lot of continuous research going on Mm -hmm. right now. Um, One of my favorite so there's a couple of favorite research studies that I read in, you know, doing all of this. Right. One of them was, you know, instead of talking about the blended model, say we're talking about the canted model. So instead of a swoop, it's just a hard angle. Yeah. Um, there have been studies done to show that it is most efficient to have a different cant angle at different phases of flight. So, you know, your cant angle at takeoff is a different efficiency than your cant angle at Uh, cruising altitude, Mm -hmm. which for most airlines, it makes sense because you spend most of your time in the air, at least for commercial jets, cruising. Yeah. Um, So just flat altitude. So most people focus on that, but there's still so much that can go wrong or so much that affects takeoff and landing. And so one of the studies actually did a very thorough analysis, and I really like the way they did this, of what angle is best at what phase of flight. So there's there's research now and you know, development now into how do we absolutely 100% optimize this 
So maybe we have a winglet that in flight, cool, takeoff is done. Now mm-hmm. we're at cruising altitude. Let's move our cant angle mid-flight. Yeah. Um, there's also research now into different winglet shapes. So one of the more, you know, kind of out there ones that I read was about, okay, so you think about a bird flying or you right. think about an eagle. Well, an eagle's wings spread differently at different points of flight. So basically there would be a winglet to mimic the spread of an eagle's feathers based on what's most efficient at that flight time. Right. Um, same thing with, there's some research now into, it's called sh- they're called shape memory alloys. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they do is under certain flight conditions, under certain temperatures, these metals can actually bend and then retain their shape. Yeah, sorry. Um, it's okay. <laughs> they can actually bend and retain their shape based mm-hmm. on what's more aerodynamically efficient. So instead of us as engineers going, okay, I think this is what's most efficient. Here's what I think my airflow over this wing is going to do. The airflow would actually direct your wing or your winglet into what is most efficient. Yeah. And what's most fuel efficient, what's going to reduce the most emissions, all that cool stuff. So instead of us having to try to figure that out, uh-huh. it would do it for us mid-flight. Wow. That's so crazy. Yeah. And it's crazy to see, like, what, mm-hmm. what's, what's going to happen with all that. Yeah, uh, it's super interesting. Yeah, man. You're, you got some really cool stuff going for you. I yeah. can say that. thank you. Um, if you had one piece of advice to share uh, with people, the world, what would it be? Um, one thing that I'm trying to live by right now, mm-hmm. and I say this a lot, is do what would make your 10-year-old self proud. Um, you know, you can't focus all the time on what other people think of you or what grade you got or what your GPA is because that is no measure of a person. Right. Um, What is a measure of a person is, are you proud of yourself? Mm -hmm. Are you happy with the things that you're doing? Do you feel satisfied with the things that you're doing in your life? And the reason I say my 10 year old self is because I try to be, in whatever I do, um, the role model that I would have needed if, you know, if I were my 10-year-old self looking up to me, would I be missing anything? Yeah. Um, and I think that you can apply that to the individual person, whether you're 10 years old or 12 years old or whatever. Right. But it's just a way of kind of self-reflection that I think has, in my life, been very useful. No, that's, so. that's great to live by. And you not only would you be a great role model for your 10 year old self, but you're a great role model for a lot of other people who are want to follow into your footsteps as well. Thank you. So thank you for the work that you've been doing and, you know, keep up the excellent job. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Mm-hmm. You know, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks. <laughs> Just shoot me a text and we'll get you in the studio. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. I'm very excited to, you know, get another opportunity to talk about my research. And like I said, I'm a big fan of lifelong learning. So I like sharing that with people. Yeah. Again, this is your host, John, of The Research Review, creating a platform to inspire. Peace out.